So hello and welcome to My Dilemma's Top Picks. I'm Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic with my co-host Abla Candeloft, film programmer, journalist, and researcher. In Top Picks, we discuss marginalization, resistance, and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery, and independent films and series. Now it's in, the, in its 11th year, My Die Champions Independent Film and using the medium as a platform for underrepresented and oft ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at My Dilarama. And if you like what we do, please like us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Our short link is mydie.link forward slash Apple. And you can support us with either a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link dot link forward slash donate. Also, if you want to keep up to date with all of our content on my die, including our podcast, please subscribe to our newsletter at my dot link forward slash subscribe. Thank you very much. Tonight, we'll be focusing more specifically on one film, which is Judas and the Black Messiah, which has benefited from quite a bit of hype. Um, but very briefly before we get to that I don't have much to flag um, or haven't watched anything off note apart from Adam Curtis's latest documentary on BBC which is available on BBC iPlayer Can't Get You Out of My Head which is a six-part series fairly similar to his other work but we'll probably end up doing a podcast about it so I won't um, talk a length about it but it's very good and very quickly flag the Glasgow Film Festival which is coming up and that will kick off on the 24th of February and will end on the 7th of March. And again, like most festivals this year, it will be online. And it's got a really good selection and a highlight of Scottish film and filmmakers. Um, so that's at glasgowfilm.org and tickets are available to buy online. Okay, I was talking to you and I had it on mute. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so I was saying that I did have one film to flag and coincidentally, it, it came out last year, but it's related to this one somewhat. So it's called MLK FBI of 2020. And it's about really the myth of MLK versus the myth of the FBI. And I think the filmmaker tried to bring more of the FBI into question. And it has excellent, I mean, I'm still deciding to be honest what I think of the film. I would recommend it. Gosh, I kind of want to say I expected more. But perhaps it might be worth watching just for the archive footage alone. So I want to say 80%. You know, I've seen many, many documentaries on the civil rights movement. And I don't, I feel like 80% of the content was new or the archive footage. So it was all voiceovers over archive footage. So that was a really interesting way to do it. So the talking heads, they didn't show them in frame. They all was all voiceover. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's just interesting. And although in some, in some ways disappointing, because I believe only two of the talking heads were black, which was bizarre because you <laughs> think, well, well, I'm just saying people have built careers out of the civil rights movement. And you only got two black talking heads. So who who were the talking heads generally, apart from, I guess, FBI agents? Well, ex-agents. Oh, no, no. It, no, no. There weren't any ex-FBI. Well, there was. Oh. No, there was one. I want to say he was a current, which, OK, to be fair, yeah, you'd expect that person to be white. But I was thinking of those who were giving the analysis. And bizarrely, he didn't talk to MLK's kids. You know, only because they're kind of guardians of the legacy still, right? Yeah. We know that Coretta passed away. And then they didn't include 
Jesse Jackson, surprisingly, and he was there when he was assassinated. So you thought, really? No Jesse? Because he has a lot to say. Right. But there was one person who was there. Let me just pull this up. It was, yes, John Lewis. And he is? And I, oh, okay. You should know who that is. He I, was, I don't. He was I just know the shop. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to say. Oh, no. Well, whatever. He was, um, no, John Lewis was in the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King. How can you, well, I, you do know him. You just have forgotten because remember when Bernie was talking about his activism during the civil rights movement yeah. and then John Lewis, well, I don't remember seeing you there. Like he was everywhere. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. And don't get me wrong. I think it's perfectly fine, of course, to challenge anyone's <laughs> claims. By all means do that. But your evidence can't be, I didn't see you. It's <laughs> absurd. Like what? <laughs> but that's that's how he's built his career. And that's one of my issues with John Lewis is that that's all he talks about. It's like, you know, that was 60 years ago and you're a politician mm -hmm. now. So why don't you talk about what you did for your district? And he can't talk about it because. Well, he's heavily involved in the Democratic Party now. Yes, he is. But the question I have is we've, we've got to talk about outcomes. So what have you done for the people who elected you? And the problem is he doesn't see that as his job, even though that's what he was elected to do. He sees his job as being a moral compass. So nothing helpful. Okay, let's talk about the film. So anyway, I'd encourage people to do that. That came out last year, um, uh, MLK, FBI. But yes, but we're talking about the film that just came out. So Judas and the Black Messiah. So released less than two weeks ago. So this is a first for us because we usually review just films that speak to us. But this is a current one. I'm glad we're reviewing it. I think it is timely because I don't know if, well, why don't we talk first? So, I, and I thought the film was just okay. I think I was expecting more, you, but I still okay. do want to, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, why? What were you going to say? No, I'm curious to see what your, um, what your issues with it are. Now, funnily enough, I actually watched it. This is a bit embarrassing, but I didn't. Uh, read up on it so I didn't know what the film was going to be about and because it stars Daniel Kaluuya and it's called Judas and the Black Messiah I thought it was some sort of sequel to Queen and Slim that had come out a few months earlier <laughs> so, um, uh, I think that came out like two years ago <laughs> did? <laughs> didn't it? I want to say that was 2019 oh man well I, I just I keep forgetting that a year has passed since last um since the beginning of COVID, so it might as so well you feel be. like you've lost a year. Yeah, I've lost a year. So 2019 is for me last year. So yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so that's what I thought it was about. And then as I was watching it, um, I was really pleased to see that it was about Fred Hampton. And it dawned on me how few films or have any films ever been made about him, which I was really surprised about. He's not a much of a talked about figure I know him because I know of some history of the Black Panthers and I know a lot about their relation the relations they built with um, relationships they built with other revolutionary parties across the world um, and I was really surprised to see that so little had been made uh, film-wise about him and about the uh, FBI infiltration of the movement so I think just realizing that the film was about that, it's like it was already a one for me. I, I wasn't really looking at where it wasn't going. Uh, it wasn't achieving its goal. And also, I have to admit that um, 
I have a big crush on Lakeith Stanfield. Oh, God. Keep it together, Abel. Let's <laughs> stay true. focused on the film. Although we could talk about, you know, that that actually was something that I could have um, talked about that I did forget about. I did see that film since we last spoke. Thank you for what was it? What's, what's the film he was in called again? Um, sorry to bother you. Yes, I finally saw that. Oh, what did you make of it? No, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. But yeah, I actually could have put that in my top pick because it would be so for people <laughs> to revisit that film uh, or visit it for the first time if they didn't get a chance to see it while it was out. Um, but yeah, no, I thought he was really good in that role. However, I think all I could think about, because I did live in Chicago for two years and there is something about Chicago men. And I don't know if it's because a lot of them come from this have like a Mississippi thing going on. I don't know. But to me, that's what was missing in Kahlua's portrayal. He Now, his his voice was spot on. Yeah. I thought that that was absolutely on point. But he just did not have that Chicago swag. And I think maybe they should have had the, maybe they needed an actor from Chicago to do that. So not even the New York actors. I thought it was quite a surprising choice of uh a fact. I mean, I thought he was very yeah. good in the part, but it, he is still essentially a, a, a British actor who does a fantastic American accent. But yeah, I was vaguely surprised that they had they hadn't just gone for an American actor, like a Chicago based based actor. To yeah, start and with. that's what I mean. Like, I don't even think they could have gone with the New York one because yeah. I think you needed that Chicago swag and you needed the charisma, which and it would have been a tall order. But I, in my opinion, like I said, I thought the accent was on point, but he just didn't have the charisma of. And I've only seen a few of Fred Hampton's speeches, Mm -hmm. but he was very charismatic. Yeah. And I didn't even when he was in the scenes where he was doing the public speaking, it just wasn't charismatic for me. Okay, yeah. But the voice was spot on, but I didn't get that sort of, yeah, he, that was missing. So I think, but who knows, you know, maybe, uh, maybe someone from Atlanta would have had that swag too. I don't know, but I, because I've never lived in Atlanta, but I have experienced that Chicago thing and it is something. And just, I'm thinking of the five or six black men I saw on a regular basis. They all had that. All right. And my friend's ex, um, I saw him a couple of years ago, and that was also a reminder of it. Just it's like an ease they have with people. It's something about them. And when I watch the Fred Hampton speeches, I get that same, have that same emotional response. And for him, I didn't have that response. Like he, so I heard Fred Hampton, but I didn't feel Mm -hmm. Fred Hampton. But I don't think the story was necessarily all about Fred Hampton, right? It was equally about other things. So I think it was equally about the Black Panther Party and, of course, about O'Neill yeah. and his position. So did you? what did you think of uh, how the way the film addressed that side of things? Well, okay. So first, so first, though, to step back a bit to what you're saying, like it, it is exactly that, right? Thinking about all the fictionalized accounts in terms of made-for-TV movies and films that we have, um, Martin Luther King, for example. We don't. We've never had that for Fred Hampton. No, exactly. So I think we should talk about that because really, the only film. I can, in terms of a fictionalized, because you do get the documentary, but that's not the same. We're talking about feature films. Mm-hmm. Panther was the last one, wasn't it? I just don't, I couldn't no. find anything else. Everything else was a documentary. Yeah, that's and it. Panther, that came out in the 90s, 1995 to be exact. 
I mean, there aren't many films made about the Black Panthers to start with. And did you Never see mind, Panther? Uh, I did, but what years okay. ago? Years okay. ago, I don't remember, well, we remember sh- enough of it. Well, we should we should watch it again. But yeah. the thing about it was it was it was fi- a fictionalized account, of course, but it was set in Oakland, so it wasn't set at one of the chapters. So mm-hmm. to me, it was I thought that was very interesting how they set the film in Chicago, which I think was important to see what a chapter of the Black Panther Party would look like in a different location. Because I remember, because like you, I also learned about the Black Panther Party, right? And I saw Panther and it, one of my takeaways was always the contradiction, right? And they talked about that in this film, right? The contradictions you have to give people to see. And for the Black Panthers, it was, you know, they were the generation that was born in California after their parents migrated, right? From Mm -hmm the terrorism of the South and for their parents. And we're talking about my grandparents, right? Yeah. That was such a different world for them. They did not challenge it because there was no contradiction for them. But if anything for them was them being upwardly mobile, they could have union jobs. They could be homeowners. They could send their children to school. I mean, just a totally different world from being in the South. Yeah. But then it was their children who came up and saw the contradictions between what they had as black people and what the white people surrounding them had and no justification for it. And they were willing to fight back against the terrorism. So they would experience police violence. And it was about that, not only empowerment to say they could protect themselves, but using the laws to do it. Where even though, of course, you had those laws in place in the South, laws are meaningless if you can't, (laughs) if you can't not only uh, behave with, use your rights as a citizen, Mm -hmm. right? Which they weren't allowed to do. But then also even, you know, defend yourself in the same way. So uh, I always saw the Panther Party through that lens. But in Chicago, we could see they're operating in it. So even though, of course, they're also the children of the migrants from the South, they are operating in a different sort of context, which I thought was interesting. And I thought it was very interesting to choose to tell the story through the eyes of someone who is infiltrating them, because you don't see that, right? That's in these types of films you follow it through the eyes of the hero, not through the eyes of the anti-hero, yeah. which was interesting. So I thought that was a very interesting setup for the film. Yeah. And I didn't know too much about O'Neill. I mean, I think, of course, I've seen Eyes on the Prize, but I didn't recall him in that film. So I had to go over his interviews in that, which I encourage everyone to do. I thought that was an interesting character. I don't know to what extent the account of O'Neill's actions and life is fictionalized in the film. Um, how much of it is just based on what he said on his interviews and how much of it is based on eyewitness accounts and so on. Because it's on the whole a fairly sympathetic portrayal and it very much insinuates, and probably rightly so, I don't, I don't know that he was, the, the FBI pretty much had a gun to his head in terms of his involvement, that he didn't have much of a choice. So I was just genuinely quite curious to see what the motivation was behind that, whether that was really the case, what research had been carried out to portray him that way. So I don't know if you know more about that. Well, I think the basis, of course, it was a fictionalized account, right? Mm. I think the basis of it was true, right? So he was either facing five years of prison or becoming an informant. But he was also, I mean, I, I don't want to minimalize incarceration, I will just say, though, he was a kid, right? And, and that's the interesting thing about it. I think we have to remember, and it's hard even with Kahlua in this part, and even, you know, your beloved actor from... <laughs> your beloved actor. Uh, they're they're older, but we have to remember they were kids. 
Yeah. They were in their early 20s. Well, and I yeah, believe he was, he was, uh, was a teenager, yeah. like 19 as he well. He was 19, So these were yeah. kids. Yeah, these were kids. So even if he had done five years, he would have gotten out and been 24. So, you know, he wasn't facing a license, which I think if we contrast it to how that works today, usually in drug enforcement, if they don't snitch, they're facing life, which is totally different. Yeah. They're facing 20 years. In comparison to today, where you have that option to become an informant or not, you're facing 20 years or life versus five years. Which, But of course, that's, as you can imagine, being only 19 and facing five years in prison does sound really scary. But he rationalized it. He didn't really, well, first off, he didn't really know about the party. So it's not as if he would been a had been a part of that. No. I mean, something interesting he says in his interview with In Eyes on the Prize is that that was respectable to be in the police and even more respectable to be in the FBI. Mm -hmm. So he saw it as him doing a good thing. And because he did not know what the Black Panther Party was. Yeah. Yeah. When he joined the Chicago chapter, they were in their very, very early stages. So there were only a few of them there. I think in the film they did depict him, and, and that's the thing, I don't know if that part is true or not, but it seems like a fictionalized account uh, of him trying to set them up. But I think they included that because that was a tactic of COINTELPRO. Set them up is they would, at what point? So remember the scene where he has some explosives in the trunk and he's like, well, you said that we need to go and kill cops. And so oh, this yeah, is what yeah, we'll do course, it. Yeah, and record, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I don't think... Because he was very clear in his interview with Eyes on the Prize that they they weren't a violent group. So he thought they never intended to, they were never going to carry out, carry out any acts where they were killing mm -hmm. people. That he thought a lot of it, in his opinion, was show. So I don't think he would have done that is what it seems like to me. But... And if anything, he saw him, you know, the way he framed it was I was working for the FBI. Of course, yeah. not he was being used by the FBI is what it was. But he was, you know, it's not as if that was going to be his path to becoming an agent. Right. Yeah. So I think that they put that in there, though, because I'm guessing here that that was a tactic of COINTELPRO. So what they would do is any sort of, um, you know, social movements is they would the people who they would put in to infiltrate would encourage them to do radical things. Like that's what people would talk about is they would know that's when it was time to leave an organization because once they started uh, suggesting doing sort of violent acts, they would know, well, they're they're clearly a plant here because nobody else is on that page. What did you think about um, O'Neill? Like the, the, the tactic to use him as part of the, as a protagonist. I think that's why for me it was a, and again, I don't, there's no value judgment in what I'm saying, but like a fairly sympathetic portrayal of him because he's the main character. So you're made to follow his journey, seeing the tussle with his conscience um, and so on. And I think his dilemma is really interesting. I thought it was a very useful, effective prism through which to study the movement and uh, Fred Hampton because otherwise I feel like it would have been too much of a um, biopic. So yeah, no, it made, it made total sense to use him as a protagonist. Do you not think so? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I definitely think the FBI was a character in that. And I think that was the other thing is they, and that's just, I think it's going to depend who sees this film because I'm not sure because, so the FBI agent, right? He justified what he was doing as they are like the Klan. Uh-huh. Right. They're a hate group. Like we have to see them all the same. Don't be fooled because they're black. They're still a hate group. And that's why they have to be infiltrated and neutralized. Yeah. And they did have a scene in there, right, where the FBI 
head is clearly a white supremacist, but that's really the state of affairs, right? It's like, no, we're trying to protect our white way of life. And we can't do that if you have people like that trying to change the order of things. Yeah. But I don't know if they presented that enough. So they didn't really explain, in my opinion, what the Black Panthers were trying to do. So they did show their programs. They did show mm-hmm. Hampton. He was going to go to prison for trumped up charges. Right. And we saw that the FBI was saying, uh, that's not really what we want because then they'll become martyrs and yeah. martyrs are worse than uh, <laughs> martyrs are worse. But then it kind of contradicted that because, well, you you can make a martyr by putting someone in prison, but you can also make a martyr by murdering somebody. So. That, so I don't think they really explain that well. But, and of course, according to O'Neill, he separates it to say, no, that wasn't the FBI. That was Chicago PD, which are two different things. Right. But okay. they don't explain that to us. So we don't know no. if that is one of O'Neill's delusions or is that true? Or are we to see all of it the same as trying or like, are we to see it all the same? Or are we saying that there's there was different fronts to the black panther struggle in terms of they they presented it as the a gang on the west side was someone they had to win over they saw you know the chicago pd and the fbi but the film never clarified so no in the film there's a reason given for why they decide to kill him what are they basing this on is it o'neill's testimony is it actual evidence from the fbi I assume not. I don't know whether we actually know what's behind the... Is it simply because whatever he did, he was going to be very influential and therefore very dangerous? And, and that's just... It is, it's also, I think, has to do with how... Like you're saying, they they tried to present O'Neill, who's the Judas, right? As a sympathetic character. And I don't know if that was the right way to go. Because he actually, you know, again, based on an interview, so I didn't do any additional research. He... he wasn't conflicted and they made this character conflicted and I'm not sure they should yeah that was my question how much of it is just based on him saying he was conflicted on his own he testimony. never said he was conflicted. He, he didn't even I say mean, this in his interviews no because he like I said he thought he was doing the right thing and he he saw himself as working with the FBI he saw himself actually what he talks about is that he thought his intel saved more people than mm-hmm. it harmed which was an interesting one. So he was talking about how, because he was on the inside, if he found out that they knew that there was an informant, then he could tell the FBI and get the informant out before they got hurt. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was an interesting one because really, I think a lot of people should see themselves in the O'Neill character, even though people would like to see themselves as as the Hampton character. (laughs) And I don't think people, Oh, it's the truth. I I don't think people are. I think they are certainly more of an O'Neill character. Yeah. Well, that's why they would it, like to admit. It, it's sad that there's so little done about him because he really stuck to his beliefs and knew how much was at stake. Well, and they both did. I mean, to me, and and that would have been the more interesting comparison, right? Because, and that's something even O'Neill concedes, right? Is that he, Hampton stuck to his beliefs and he was willing to die for that. Yeah. And he was the same, but it was, he was just not political. And I think that's why O'Neill is the character that most people should identify with, because most people are not politically active in that way. It makes you see it in slightly different light. The fact that, you know, at the end of the film, uh, the film closes with his one of his interviews. After that, it says that shortly after he killed himself. Mm-hmm. So there was some level of guilt 
that's what the film implies. That that's why it's mentioned that he killed himself. Is that it was linked to his role? That's what it, I mean. That's what they say. But I'm not. I'm but you're not, not convinced. I'm not convinced. Um, okay, so after he was outed, right, as an informant, then he went in the witness protection program. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can greatly influence your mental well-being. And he ended up coming back to Chicago secretly because witness protection, you it, it's almost like uh, what people talk about when they, uh, the psychological toll of passing, yeah. right? It's like, it, it takes... I don't think we appreciate, maybe it's making us appreciate more now that we're in COVID and can't see anybody like you have having dreams about meeting up with, <laughs> with friends. Well, cause that's our headspace. So imagine not even being able to do what we're doing, which is talking on the phone. You can't even do that. Mm. And then give that a decade. And I think your mental health would greatly yeah, that's deteriorate. Really yeah. And so then he comes, you know, he comes back into Chicago secretly. So he, his, Apparently he'd had a suicide attempt prior to that, but who, yeah, that's just it. Who's to say what the cause of that was. Yeah. Because, you know, you have to think like, why wait all those years? If you felt that bad, you would commit suicide earlier. You know what I mean? So that's a bit of a yeah. delay. And I think a lot of, a lot can happen in your life in 20 years. But I do feel like that's the what the film frame. was trying to tell us though, by mentioning it think, like. Again, like, but I think yeah. it goes back to them trying to make a sympathetic character, yeah. but I don't think they needed to make him a, a sympathetic because it's, it's like I said, I I think the story that should have been, you know, and how much we love to criticize these films. I, I think a better story could have been told to show how that you have to take a side and being apolitical, it's easy to, to pull you to, yeah, pull you to the other side. And it's almost perhaps, you know, if, if I think had the, had he been drawn to the Panthers for real, like maybe he would have really been a Panther. I mean, who who knows? Mm-hmm. It's um, it's almost like, you know, there's a Bible scripture about that too. It's just like be hot or cold and you're lukewarm, I spit you out. <laughs> and yeah, and, and they tried to, I think, make him more of a lukewarm character, but I don't think he was. He was just cold, right? Mm-hmm. And Fred Hampton was hot and for the people and he was just like, mm, no, I think law enforcement is what's needed. I think it's admirable. I think that they are trying to, eliminate the more dangerous elements. And and he says something too interesting. He says in the interview that he thinks it's a mistake to affiliate the Black Panthers with the civil rights movement, which is like, oh, and and the interview didn't delve deeper to that. I want to know, can you say more about that, sir? Yeah, even though he's had firsthand experience of how nonviolent the movement was by and large. Yeah, exactly. And he's very clear that he developed friendships. So he felt like they were really friends. But he also thought that he was right in what he was doing. However accurate this portrayal is, or whatever the intention was behind it, what I thought was really effective was it didn't distract from the central message message of the film, which was really what the Panthers were about at that time. And that's something that we don't see enough of, at least in mainstream cinema, which is about um, education, enlightenment, intellectual reasoning, uh, conceptualizing revolution. And I think that's why I enjoyed the film so much. I mean, I found it really upsetting, but... Oh, really? What part was upsetting for you? Well, (laughs) the simple fact that basically he was 
condemned from the get-go like there's so little he's he's up against so, so much and such a powerful system that there's no way to achieve that i was particularly moved and i didn't know about this was um his attempts at rallying round uh, the um i guess i'm not even sure what to call them because they're not really white supremacists are they the uh they were i believe they're called the young rebels okay i believe is what they're called but no no they okay well, let's be clear they were a racist group right and then it took years of coalition building and they only agreed to work with them once they renounced that and were anti-racist. So they didn't work with them until they would agree. To yeah, be, you see, they, I didn't know anything yeah. about that. And I thought it was a yeah. really powerful strategy and a really interesting one. And I wish it had been explored more. So this, but this is the key thing, though, because I think and I'm not saying you're saying this, but I think others, when they they talk about it, they do misunderstand because a problem I have now, right, when people talk about, you know, Rainbow Coalitioning, which I think mm -hmm. doesn't work because people don't take the lessons from the Black Panthers. The whole point of having coalition is they have to support your agenda. And he, he was print, uh, presenting the Black Panther agenda is mutually beneficial. Yeah. So I, I think the problem I have with how people, how like first people see it as, oh, no, they just came together under a common enemy of the oppressor yeah. right in capitalism it's just like well kind of but that's only part of it because they had to also be anti-racist and by anti-racist at that time and anti-black even though i know they work with yeah. the uh, young lords the puerto rican group too the uh, what they held in common too was those those people that rebel group they were also from the south but you see that that's what would also create a conflict because while we're fleeing from white terrorism from the south they were just fleeing from the economic decline, yeah. but then finding themselves in Chicago living an impoverished life. Today, what's missing is they seem to think, and, and I had a similar experience. I was working with, well, not working with, what am I saying? I interviewed this group of students because what, and I don't know if they still do this, but what one of the labor unions used to do, the AFL-CIO, is train students over the summer and then they were to go back to their campuses to organize. And one of their big wins was getting college, you know how you have the college merch, so to speak, yeah. with, you know, the bags yeah, and the, the sweatshirts sweat, yeah. and yeah, exactly. They had a successful campaign to get that out of sweatshops, right? To say, well, oh, you yeah, sweatshops to make here, it, yeah. 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 So that was a bit, that was a win for them. And so one of the things I interviewed them about was some of the students came back to organize the actual workers on campus. Mm -hmm. So it was mainly black workers. But when I, so I interviewed the student organizers and the workers, so the student organizers were white. And an interesting thing they said was that they initially didn't want to do it. They wanted the black student group to do it, but the black student group had no interest in doing it, which was interesting. <laughs> So because the black student group didn't want to do it, they decided to go ahead and do it on their own. Right. And just get them as like a supporter of it. Right. So then when I talked to the black workers, they said that their issue was that the organizers did not want to talk about racism in the workplace. They said whenever they would bring it up, which is why they were reluctant to participate, yeah. is that whenever they brought it up, they're just like, well, no, that's divisive. Like we only have to talk about our mutual interests as workers. Oh. And to me, that's yeah. part of the problem yeah. that I see with coalition building. It's like, no, we can only talk about our shared interests, but it's like, no, but 
our shared interests can only be realized once you understand and work to tackle our particular interest. And I think that's why it takes, it took a couple years of a lot. And uh, there's books that talk about it, mm-hmm. the work that they had to put in to get those allyship. And unfortunately, I don't think that is widely understood today. No. Which, which is why they don't get off the ground. That's why they, they don't get anywhere. You People, they want their movement to be diverse. So they just use rainbow colored people to say, see, look, everybody's here. So we're all, (laughs) we're all working towards shared justice, but I don't think they gave enough attention to that because the way they, they showed it was just like, Oh, he comes into a meeting and explains their shared interests. Uh, I mean, and I get it's a film, so Mm -hmm. you you can't, they didn't have a lot of time, but I don't know. I I feel like if you, you you can't show it properly, there was, maybe you could have just left that out. I don't know if they had to include that. Cause there's so much to explore in that film. I think it's good because at least for someone like me, I didn't know about any of this. So (laughs) I look, why, you know, it made me interested in looking it up. I didn't know there was this effort to reach out to other communities as well. But yeah, but I think that's why I find the whole thing upsetting when you think, um, especially the little blurb at the end with, they've been disbanded and there's nothing that's taken up the mantle of it since. I think something has taken up the mantle, but it's just not that. I think what took the place of that is identity politics. So now people want to talk about culture, 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 and a big piece of, which is why they were a socialist group, right? A big part of what they were saying was really a redistribution of wealth. Yeah. And that's what nobody wants to talk about anymore. No one wants to talk about the economics of race. They just want to talk about the representation Mm -hmm. of race. It begs the question, what was the civil rights movement? And I'm not sure that's, number one, it's not really taught. Mm -hmm. And then when it is taught, it's taught through the lens of individual achievement. Yeah. So you learn about Martin Luther King, but that's not talking about the movement that's talking about Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. but we equate it and something you know I was uh, a book that I shamelessly never have finished but I only got through the introduction I don't know why but it was the biography of Rosa Parks and in that introduction the author raises some excellent questions which is her husband got her into organizing and we never talk about her husband no and we never talk about the movements that she, because of course, after the bus boycott, she, her family had to leave Montgomery and she moved to Detroit and then she organizes there for 40 years. We never no. talk about her activism in Detroit. No, we just talk Ever. about her sitting on the bus. Yeah, being very respectful. <laughs> and FYI, as a side note, she has, she had really long hair that she kept tucked in a bun. That's an interesting thing about Rosa Parks. Like you just think, oh, she had a regular bun. No, no. Apparently like she had really long hair, but she wrapped it up uh, because her husband liked her hair long. It's like, hey. Yeah. But that's something we don't talk about. Even then, you never mentioned Rosa Parks' husband. And he was an activist. As as you know, Rosa Parks was a part of the NAACP, but her husband refused to be a part of it because he's like, they're they're a bunch of bougie Negroes who don't want to do anything. I don't want to join. So, (laughs) well, and that's what he argued. They don't really want to see change. They are not. Uh, And that's been a criticism for the organization for generations now. So it was interesting, of course, that Rosa Parks like, no, no, we can't institute change through this. And so she decided to go that route. And her husband, um, his activism was through other organizations. Yeah. Uh, How much power do they actually have on the ground? I mean, that I, you know, the way I was educated 
was that they don't because they are no longer backed by a movement. They're an organization of professionals. And that's something I want to talk about as well, which is the professionalization of community organizing. Because back to the point about them being kids. Yeah. Today, a 20-year-old can't get a job as a community organizer who didn't go to college. It's not going to happen. No. Well, exactly. How, who, how are you meant to find the time to do that when you're trying to survive? So also you need to be in a position where you can put in the time. Well, that's why they were all young, right? So they were certainly, they were certainly of an age where they could get by with little. No, it's the yeah. truth though. Because you, you, like you're saying, how would you be able to do that and take care of your family? Although there of course were Panthers who sacrificed their families in order to do the work because they believed in it so much. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's one of the barriers, which I think is why it was professionalized. But then the problem is once you professionalize it, then you shut beneficiaries out of those leadership positions like even if we look let's take a look at even the ella baker school of organizing there's no young people on that in this leadership that i that they have here these are all oldies how do you know what's that about well i'm looking at their faces they look old to me (laughs) when and when i say young young people i'll I'm even reaching to really to say under 30. Why not? We can say under 30. Yeah. None of these people look under 30. If anything, there is no reason. And, and that's just it. The, the organizing needs you. It, it is a young people's game, in my opinion, because that's a uh, an old criticism of the left that mm-hmm. at least the right, they give activists jobs. Yeah. Paid jobs. Yeah. The left. And that's why you get a center left because the people who can be involved in the left are people who can afford to not work pretty much, which means you have to come to a family with some means to not work. But I think, you know, thinking about the uh, film, right, it's still about that. Like what kind of story were they trying to tell about the Black Panthers? Because even then they didn't talk about why that idea would be dangerous to the US. I mean, they hinted- Which idea, the fact that they can organize effectively. Yeah, yeah, organizing people. Because in in the FBI scene, he talked about, he framed the threat as this paternalistic, and this language we still hear today, right? About black men being violent rapists and we don't want to empower them. Mm -hmm. Because think about your daughter and the world you want to create for her. Yeah. And I think we still hear that sort of language. Yeah today around um even you know what i was thinking about it too when we were talking uh, well not we but the discourse around black men in the election Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of in my opinion a disproportionate focus on the number of black men who voted republican yeah um even though it was i want to say it was maybe seven percent eight percent who voted for trump so against like the four percent of black women who voted for trump mm-hmm. and then everyone else of course was like at least 30 percent <laughs> voting for trump but somehow somehow black men were framed as the danger to the democratic party and you're like how'd that happen <laughs> but i think it, no, seriously though but to me it's uh, a rearticulation of that language of black men are dangerous yeah. So in this film, they're, you know, in terms from the FBI perspective, yeah, they're dangerous to the social order. But that framing of saying we have to do something about that is they're dangerous to the political order mm-hmm. because they won't toe the line 100%. Right. A couple of uh, words in conclusion. 
come. Yeah, I feel like we went a lot of places. Yeah. So I think, you know, even though I was, I'd say overall, I give the film a six. I think I was expecting more. I did think it was interesting to show things through the eyes of a Judas who I, I wouldn't necessarily frame as a Judas. Like I said, I would frame it as two men who stuck to their beliefs, but because Hampton's belief was for right equality peace justice food housing really yeah. black liberation he paid the ultimate price for that and even the fbi this sort of i'm always somewhat cautious of films that because i do think his contact at, at the fbi was a better depiction of white racism than the sort of overt foaming at the mouth yeah, rabbit races and the like and i think they did do that with more of the you know hoover character because of course that's where the black messiah things come from right like we have to pre prevent yeah. the rise of black messiah and i'd like to see less of that and more of because when you have those kinds of racists it allows everyday racists which are mm -hmm. most people right to distance themselves yeah yeah, I thought he was a very interesting character, actually. And I did wonder, will they go down the route of, oh, he's going to have an epiphany when he realizes that um, the FBI planted the, li you know, lied about the, the informant and basically had uh, their own informant kill another guy. And when he finds out, he's there's a moment in which he's he he expresses shock and says, well... What, just like that, you're going to let someone get away with murder? And I did think, oh, will they go down the route of, oh, he's going to see the lie and understand that actually <laughs> the people in charge are the violent ones and he's going to rally around. <laughs> um, and I'm, I mean, it is based on a true story, so fair enough. But because, and that's the issue I had with um, Black Klansmen, for example, is very much um, a minority of nutters are the real threat. And actually the rest right, of Right, that was are, the problem. Yeah, yeah that was the problem. And, and even that closing scene, which I wish they would have left off totally, where they pretend that they were going to set up someone internally being racist and fire him. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it wasn't necessary. Like, if, if anything, I thought it was... Um, gosh, how could I forget about Black Klansmen? Yeah, if, if anything, I thought they didn't problematize what he was doing at all because he started out infiltrating the Black Panthers, right? Yeah. That's how he got the, before he yes. did the Klan work. Yes, when and he went to the um, to listen to uh, Stokely Carmichael speak. Yeah, 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 and they never problematized mm -hmm. that, which is a big problem because so essentially he is O'Neill. Yeah, and yet in this time we're not allowed to root for O'Neill, but in Black Klansmen <laughs> we were. But they're the same character because oh, because they would have done it no matter the organization if they thought it was good for their career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 and. I think it would be, <laughs> like I said, better to make even those characters more relatable so people can see that is, that's who you are. And when, when you realize that, that's when you mm -hmm. have <laughs> the nervous breakdown, like, oh my God, you mean I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not Huey. I'm not, and you're not, you're not Huey. You're not Hampton. Well, on the whole, I think this actually, the, the reference to Black Klansman reminds me what I liked specifically about this film and that would be my conclusive okay. remark about it was that it was mm -hmm. unapologetic it didn't try like I felt Black Landsman did like so many films try to distance themselves from what they see as um, the more radical elements of the Panthers 
No, I understand that, but I do think I I would prefer a different depiction of O'Neill. I feel like it gives viewers a solid understanding of what the Panthers were about. Um, in and it shed a positive light on their work, which I think is really sorely missing from just the discourse that's out there about about. Well, their like legacy. you're saying, people don't know about it. Yeah, people don't know about it. Like you're saying, and I think their legacy is left out of social movements in the U.S. Yeah. Right, but that's just it. You know, we, we you know something that we talked about was that about the legacy of the Black Panthers. And I think with that is who has been allowed to write the civil rights story. Mm -hmm. It's something that comes up again and again in the U.S. when it comes to the textbooks, because that's where people learn about these things is in school. And that is what another thing that conservatives do well is, is they get on these because it's so powerful and it's it's not an elected position to write these textbooks and there and unfortunately oh my gosh you wouldn't even believe it there was a black supporter of this of them changing the books to say that slaves were forced migrants to say like this is a country of immigrants (laughs) yeah yes and and though but it, it goes back to that so The question is, when you have those sorts of activists, because based on what I've read about Fred Hampton, he only left the California area once, the California, oh my gosh, the Chicago area once, and that was to go to LA by invitation of the Black Panther Party HQ. So he was local. Of course, you know, great impact. I'm not saying it wasn't. It's just that that was local. So how would people who were part of that chapter ever be in a position to write the history of the Black Panther Party or, you know, insert that in the history of the civil rights movement and then thinking about how with a Martin Luther King's day, then that has allowed a very particular narrative about Martin Luther King to be told. Like, I don't know if you remember that book that came out about the I Have a Dream speech because it's often misunderstood and misquoted, which is what part of part of what the book talks about i mean and it, and it, like you're saying it has been referenced in other books because they talk about how it was edited last minute like there's a really great shot of them making all of these changes because they did not want it to be as militant and radical as the speech writers wanted and that's something later malcolm x talks about when he uh he makes this comment that you notice that they didn't let jimmy speak and he's talking about james baldwin And he says they couldn't let him speak because you never know what he's going to say. And he, you know, he can't be controlled. So they only, and he's very critical to say, like, I want everybody to go and look who organized that march, who decided who was going to speak, who paid for it, and who was controlling it. And, you know, and these are questions that no one asks. Instead, it's like, I'm, we have to have the dream of black children and white children being friends. No, that's not the story of the speech. (laughs) Okay, we could go on like a thousand tensions, but it is getting late. So I'm going to have to put an end to the podcast recording. So that's it from us for this week. Join us again next time for more talk about film. We'll probably talk about the Adam Curtis documentary, or maybe one of our guests will like to make a suggestion. Thank you very much for listening.